brought to you by RunToGold.com, the premier source for monetary science applied to geopolitical, international, and economic financial news and events. Welcome back to the 35th episode of the RunToGold.com podcast. In this episode, I discuss the Brazilian economy with Contrary Investors Cafe. So, enjoy! everyone and welcome back to Jim Willie and Friends. This week we're here with our friend Trace Meyer. Hi Trace. Hi Michelle, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Welcome back. It's been a while since we've had an opportunity to talk with you. You've been off gallivanting around the world. Just got <laughs> back from South America. Yeah, yeah, just uh, just returned a couple days ago. So it's nice to be back in the States where it's warm because it's uh, winter down there now. <laughs> oh, yeah, I suppose it would be, although that's not something I think about that often. Um, actually, I was just reading your article on Brazil on your website, and I wondered if your trip south was the reason what prompted you to write the article on Brazil. Well, it, it definitely contributed to it. There have been a lot of uh, very important geopolitical and geostrategic uh, events taking place uh, with Brazil. And since I was down there, I figured uh, I might as well... Uh, write a little bit about what's going on so that people can have a little bit of the big picture of, of what's happening. You know what I find really interesting? You know, we hear the term brick tossed around. It's Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And I find it fascinating. It seems like which one of these doesn't belong. It really doesn't seem like Brazil belongs with Russia, India, and China, not in the same area of the world, not really even thought of in the same you know, mindset as the economies, say, in India and Russia, which have been coming up but have, have been set back a while. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how that fits in altogether? Yeah, they seem kind of like the, the odd one out, the one that doesn't fit. Uh, but actually, they're, they're right in there, right? In the, they're, they're, they lead it off, and they're, they're a very important part of the, the brick economy. Why don't you give us a little bit of a background on what you understand about you know, what's in common with these economies and why they're kind of posing, I wouldn't say a threat, but there's something that they're definitely um, a, a group of countries that we need to be on the lookout for. Yeah, well, definitely. So you've got the first two, which are Brazil and Russia. And what Brazil and Russia have in common is that they're, uh, they're both commodity powerhouses. Uh, very large countries geographically, tremendous natural resources, whether it's oil or timber or uh, other commodities, uh, the soft commodities. And then you've got uh, India and China, which are the, uh, <laughs> the, the abundant cheap labor economies. And so the two, uh, these two groups together form the BRIC economies. Now, it's not necessarily that there are any trade agreements in place like Mercosur or, or ASEAN or uh, like the EU. It's not, not anything like that, and I, and I really don't see anything like that happening uh, from, a, from a political standpoint with these economies. But I do see them integrating uh, a lot more in terms of uh, agreements with their commodities and agreements with, uh, with how their labor is uh, structured and set up. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the, the commodities and 
you know, I, I think one thing that I, I want to make the point of, and, and you and I chatted about this before, you know, that that uh, a lot of people view the United States as the engine that drives the world's economies, and it really isn't the case anymore. Right. Uh, I think it's Peter Schiff. He says, you know, the United States isn't the engine, it's the caboose. <laughs> and uh, that really is uh, kind of the case, because uh, to, you know, to to use another of Peter's analogies, uh, he talks about everybody uh, helps work and put together a meal, and so the the, the cheap and abundant uh, labor economies uh, like India and China, you know, they're the ones uh, climbing the trees or, or preparing the food or cooking the food, and then you've got uh, Russia and Brazil who are actually providing the food. You know, they own the they own the trees uh, with the coconuts or or whatever it is. And so America's job is to eat the meal. <laughs> and, oh my. Uh, and so everybody thinks, oh, well, the, the whole economy will, will be horrible if Americans don't eat the meal. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that the people who uh, own the trees that provided the food for the meal and the people who prepared the meal, they'll eat the meal. <laughs> you know, and actually, they'd, they'd be better off and their standard of living would rise if they just told the Americans that they weren't invited to dinner anymore, unless they brought dessert or something. <laughs> so, in, in essence, if, if the, these BRIC countries really rallied together and supported one another and excluded America from the picture, they'd all be better off, and we'd be sort of left hanging. Uh, well, yeah, a little bit. I mean, America's not going to go anywhere. America is at the center of Atlantic and Pacific trade. It's in a very dominant position, we control the oceans. So, I mean, America isn't not going, you know, they'll still be invited to dinner. They just might get a smaller portion while the other, the people who uh, provided the food and the people who cooked it will then, uh, they'll eat a little bit more. Because right now we kind of just, you know, they, they provide all the food and they prepare it and we just leave them the table scraps. Uh, that's how our world reserve currency, uh, the Federal Reserve Note dollars worked. And so, I think that they're starting to wake up and realizing that this isn't such a great deal for them or their citizens, and they're starting to uh, plan in a little bit more of a geopolitical and geostrategic sense to uh, retain a little bit more of that purchasing power or uh, that meal for their own people. Why don't you talk a little bit about the significance of the relationships um, between, like, Brazil and China and you know, some of the other BRIC countries and how those are developing and what that means for um, for the U.S. Well, there, there's, big, uh, there's big happenings going on between uh, China and South America. Uh, we have uh, Argentina and Brazil. They recently engaged in a currency swap of about $1.5 billion dollars. And then Argentina also signed a $10 billion currency swap with China. And China's also uh, engaging in uh, lots of trade with Brazil. So what's happening is that they're, they're trying to, to the, the Chinese are trying to get some of the currency market share uh, that the dollar has down there. You know, instead of holding dollars, they want them to hold yuans. <laughs> And they want to start settling their trades in yuan and things like that. So what that'll do is that'll help increase the liquidity of the yuan, which will increase its value while 
the uh, Federal Reserve note dollar, it'll lose some of its liquidity and, and therefore lose some of its uh, purchasing power. So that's, that's what's uh, going on is China's trying to move in and they're trying to, I think, uh, hedge a lot of their dollar exposure uh, with these commodities that come from the commodity producers like Russia or uh, Brazil. Now, do you think that that is, in essence, positioning the yuan to take over as a world reserve currency? Uh, well, I don't know. I don't necessarily think the yuan will take over as a world reserve currency, but I think that the Chinese are trying to, to have it become one of uh, the major currencies. Uh, so we've got the Federal Reserve Note dollar, we've got the euro, the yen, the British pound. I think that they want to move it up into one of those top tiers uh, among the, uh, the major world currencies. So uh, to do that, they're, they're forming relationships with these countries that provide a lot of the commodities and natural resources, because ultimately a currency is only good for what it will buy, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so they want to make sure that their yuan's uh, will buy oil or timber or cattle or soybeans or whatever it is that Argentina or Brazil or Russia uh, produces because they want these real things, these real goods, uh, particularly food. They want to make sure that they have food for their people. Well, that makes sense. Um, so let's kind of go back to, to Brazil after I diverted us off to China's yuan. Um, and talk about how they're, you know, some of the commodities that they have and how, you know, they're working the trade agreement. Well, Brazil is very interesting uh, and unique in the fact that it's, it's down there by the Amazon, the equator, and so they have a lot of growing seasons, and they have very rich and fertile soil. So they're able to, uh, in some cases, they're able to have four growing seasons where there's only one growing season in, uh, like, a, a similar place in North America, for example. So they're able to grow their trees a lot faster. They're able to grow their wheat a lot faster. And what this does is uh, Brazil really becomes kind of like a breadbasket for the world. They, they produce a lot of the food. Well, we saw this last year. There were some... Uh, there were some shortages of rice and wheat. And the first thing that happened is the countries uh, began to engage in protectionism, and 29 countries blocked their wheat and rice exports. And Brazil was one of those countries. They, they suspended 500,000 tons of, of uh, grain exports. And so this is, uh, this is a theme that I think we're going to see is that countries want to make sure that they have the basics for their people. They want to make sure that they have the food. And Brazil, as a, as a large commodity producer, they're self-sufficient in that area. They're able to uh, call their own shots because they have the food. <laughs> and that's, uh, that, that puts them in a very powerful bargaining position uh, and especially with a country like China who's trying to feed uh, a billion people. You know, Brazil is uh, one of the largest countries in the world geographically, but it only has 200 million people. They're, over, they're about seven times as, mi- as many people in China as there are in Brazil, uh, and yet Brazil is able to produce all of this excess food. So it puts Brazil in a very strong bargaining position as opposed to somebody like uh, like a Japan, 
where if they don't have imports of food coming in, uh, they'll starve to death in six weeks. So uh, Brazil's not, uh, Brazil is fortunately not in that position, and it lends them a lot of uh, stability uh, politically because they have the food, even though they are South American, and uh, the South Americans are kind of a boiling pot, uh, a melted, well, boiling uh, politically, but they're, they they do have the food and things, so it keeps their populations uh, pretty safe and secure in that sense. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in your article that the, the Brazil's president was visiting um, Turkey and China and Saudi Arabia. Now, you know, what's the significance of, of Saudi Arabia in, in this? Well, Saudi Arabia is a large oil producer, uh, but what we're seeing is that uh, OPEC is losing a lot of their clout, and Saudi Arabia particularly uh, has most likely passed peak oil production as a country. And so they're going to increasingly uh, lose a lot of their, their clout in the oil market. And I think Brazil, uh, behind the closed doors, Brazil uh, might be letting them know that, hey, you're not the only game in town anymore as far as who can set the oil price. Uh, so uh, we got lots of oil. We produce lots of oil. So let's be friends and uh, and and uh, perhaps they're they're working out some of those uh, changes that will be happening uh, to the oil to the oil market as far as uh, production goes because of Saudi Arabia's uh, declining production because of the depletion of their oil fields. Because most of their oil majors, whether it's the Galwar field or uh, some of their other uh, super their super large fields, uh, they're they're beginning to decline at a rapid rate because of how they had. Uh, tried to recover the oil a lot quicker. So they're, they're declining. Some of them are 8% per year. So Saudi Arabia is going to rapidly be losing a lot of its clout and influence. And, uh, of course, the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabian and American relationship, uh, that, sh- that, that points to a decreased influence of the Americans in the worldwide uh, oil market. So I think Brazil is probably over there. Uh, talking about some of these things behind closed doors and seeing how they they wanted to move forward on probably good, friendly terms because Brazil's not a very aggressive nation. Well, and sometimes it's the quiet, meek ones that you have to watch out for because they accomplish things without garnering a lot of attention. Yeah, I mean, whether it's Brazil or China... Uh, both of them trying to accomplish things through diplomacy and through contracts uh, rather than uh, occupation and invasion, for example, or uh, other subversive tactics. Because that's another thing with South America is that uh, there's a very strong anti-American sentiment uh, in lots of parts of South America, and it's embodied in this figure of Che Guevara, who was a revolutionary who crusaded against the American corporations because they were uh, abusing the uh, the South Americans. And actually, while I was down there in South America, I decided, oh, I want to go see the Capitol building. It was a couple blocks from my hotel. So I, I get out, and I'm just wandering around the streets of Buenos Aires uh, in Argentina, and I wander into a 30,000-person protest, and they've all got these Che Guevara banners and things like that. And so... I was uh, quite interested, you know, quite surprised to see that this person who had been 
executed 40 years ago still had such a strong uh, influence in the political arena down there. His ideas did. And so there, there is kind of this anti-American sentiment uh, down there because they feel they've been abused by the large multinational corporations or whatnot. And so they're, uh, they're, <laughs> they're forming these relationships with other countries that uh, they feel, for whatever reason, treat them better. You know, it's interesting. I want to touch back on that, but I want to go back before we um, move on to the, that topic. Uh, you mentioned uh, Brazil and China and oil, and in your article you were talking about a, a new agreement between Brazil and China where the Brazil guaranteed China, you know, oil at uh, current market prices, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yes, uh, back in... Let's see, where is it? Uh, they, they, they'd been talking about this uh, for a couple months. I wrote an article about it back in February. But just today, on May 19th, uh, they signed 13 accords. Uh, and these agreements uh, are regarding oil exploration and crude trade. And so Petrobras, which is uh, Brazil's super oil major, they're going to be working with the Chinese oil companies and supplying 150,000 to 200,000 barrels a day of oil uh, to China. So this is this is a way that China is able to secure some of their uh, oil needs. And you know, I I don't know about everybody else, but I never really thought about oil as I mean uh, Brazil as a major oil producer. You know, you always hear about OPEC in the Middle East. South America just doesn't seem to be on that radar. But apparently, you know, there definitely has a resource down there that we aren't aware of. Yes, and a lot of this oil is uh, offshore. So they do need some of the technology uh, of, our, of our oil companies in order to really get a hold of it. But they, they're, a, they're a very large oil producer, and they're building, uh, as uh, Dwayne said, uh, before the show, they're building a big refinery down there. It's just massive, and so they are. They're definitely a player when it comes to producing oil. And another thing uh, that adds to their strength is that they are uh, net oil exporters versus net oil importers. For example, the United States, we use 28 million barrels a day, but we only produce uh, a fraction of that. And so with Brazil, uh, they have this surplus of oil, uh, which... You know, if if supplies get tight, they can always keep it for themselves, kind of like they did with the wheat. Okay, let's go back to what you were talking about with the the anti-American sentiment um, and Che Guevara. I do find it interesting that after you know, forty years after he was killed, that he still seems to be a a symbol of that rebellion of that um, anti-American sentiment. And I guess my question is. Do you think that that's something that that just is going to continue to bubble under the surface, or do you think that could could start to boil over? Well, I, it's not so much under the surface. I mean, thirty thousand person protests uh, out in their their front of their Capitol building that shows some displeasure. Uh, but I don't think they were, uh, you know, protesting the American corporations. But yeah, it's. I think that it's there because. The American empire has created some enemies. You know, we've got enemies in the Middle East that will strap bombs on themselves and try to right. blow us up. Uh, and so I don't think it's that bad 
uh, down there in most parts of South America yet. But there are examples of, of countries like, uh, I think it was Bolivia, that actually kicked out the U.S. ambassadors. Said, Get out of our country. We don't want you here. And so there is, uh, you know, some of them are even severing their diplomatic ties with the U.S. Uh, they're just fed up with, with the heavy-handed tactics of, of a failing empire. So I think that that's, uh, I think that as the U.S. empire continues to weaken, that it'll leave vacuum, you know, leave some space and vacuum in uh, South America. And so uh, those countries down there, they'll, they'll, they'll uh, expand to fill that void, uh, probably uh, by letting in, you know, China or some of these other uh, large regional players. Well, I want to move on and talk about, um, you know, the, some other things happening here with, you know, the prices of the precious metals and gold. But before before we do move on, is there anything... Um, any other impressions from South America and Brazil that we haven't touched on today that you wanted to talk about? Oh, they just—they got some of the best beef in the world. So if anyone's uh, if anyone's considering a a trip, you know, South America is a great place. Uh, I really like it. Uh, I'd recommend Argentina is a great place to go down there. It's uh, relatively cheap uh, to get around, and you can experience uh, great. You know, just just a lot of culture and and things like that, and it it helps to get out of one's comfort uh, shell and to go down and travel and see the world because then you have a perspective that uh, you can't really get just from reading words on a screen and so or listening to a podcast. I mean, you go down and you go to a tango show or you go skiing in uh, Barlochi, which is as nice as Lake Tahoe with powder, as nice as uh, Park City. So, I mean, a lot of people think of South America as a jungle, and they're going to get bit by a bunch of bugs or spiders or whatever. But the truth of the matter is is that some of these cities are as nice uh, or even nicer than parts of Europe, like Paris, for example. I'd, I'd rather spend time in South America than in Paris, and I've been to both uh, several times. So a lot of people think it's a jungle, but it, it isn't so much uh, a jungle. But at the same time, there is a little bit of uh, safety concerns in some cities like Sao Paulo or Rio. So, uh, you know, make sure you do your homework. But it's a, it's a great place to go down and just see what's happening. Well, I think it's important that, you know, we start thinking about, you know, the the globe. And you said people think about Brazil as a jungle, and there's a lot of misconceptions. You know that it's not just the Amazon and, and and crocodiles. There's you know some very beautiful cities and and beaches. There's definitely some beautiful vacation spots in South America. Right. All right. Well, now that we've wrapped that up, I really want to move on to you know the the uptrends in gold and silver and and, and the precious metals right now because it really is starting to look very promising, isn't it? Oh yeah. The uh, especially if you look at the gold to silver ratio. It's uh, it's really strengthened a bit, which shows that there's some legs to this uh, rally. I know. I was just looking at it. it looks like uh, gold at nine twenty six fifty as we're speaking right now. And uh, you know what was it? Just just two weeks ago, it was you know, moving downward again. You know, it had a little rally and then it was moving downward. And you know, kind of wondered whether it was going to start back up again. But now that it started back up, it's just continuing to rise pretty much on a daily basis. 
Yeah, which is, uh, I think, part of it's seasonal. Uh, gold usually will rise uh, May, and then it'll be a little slow throughout the summer. Um, but during the summer, it, it usually kind of is very mellow. But there's a lot of uncertainty in the markets, and I think that uh, some of the really big hedge funds are starting to sniff out uh, this opportunity in the gold market. They've honed in on Gata's beacon. And Fleming, Adam Fleming, uh, Fleming and Partners uh, from Standard Charter Bank, he had he had the Gata delegation over to London, and they, they uh, had 80 investment houses there to listen to them. And they talked about, uh, ironically, my article about the GLD ETF and how they don't really have the gold. And, uh, and yet we see some of these big hedge funds, like John Paulson's hedge fund, has 8.7% of the GLD ETF. And so I think these big hedge funds are they're starting to uh, call the central bank's bluff and say, well, give me the metal in my hand. And as I mentioned in my article, uh, the, the Deutsche Bank uh, had to get bailed out by the ECB. You know, they had to deliver a bunch of gold, and the very same day they had to deliver the gold on the COMEX, the ECB sold 38 tons. So... I think that the hedge funds are starting to call the central bank's bluff and demand the physical gold. And so if there, you know, there could be a very explosive move really at any time uh, if, if there is a failure to deliver on any of these major exchanges, whether it's the COMEX or the LVMA or, or uh, whoever, uh, it, because there's, there should absolutely be no reason for gold to ever failure to deliver uh, because of the above-ground stockpiles. And so even though we've seen the backwardation uh, uh, filter off, there still is this demand for physical delivery. And so I think the central banks are bleeding a lot more gold uh, than, they, than they are going to be able to sustain. So it's going to be get, getting pretty interesting, especially when the next round of credit uh, shocks come from, say, a GM bankruptcy. Right, which is definitely in the in the works. I think it looks inevitable. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of credit default swaps on that, and uh, and like Chrysler just declared bankruptcy, and I mean the 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 job market is, you know, oh, it's slowed down. We're only losing half a million jobs a month now. <laughs> you know, it's it's good news. We've got green shoots, but. Uh, you know, there there aren't any green shoots in North America. All the green shoots are growing down in the Amazon, <laughs> and they're growing and they're growing four times as fast because they have four times as many seasons uh, to grow. Right. In. So, so it's uh, yeah, they're, they're trying to spin it and make it positive up here, but all of it is really. Uh, I mean, it's it, the, the, North America is kind of the caboose on on the train, and so it's. It's uh, not, you know, any time the currency uh, has these problems, it's going to be bullish for the gold price in that currency. And I showed how even in the Brazilian real, uh, gold has performed extremely well. So uh, it's, it's getting, uh, I mean, everybody should at least own some of the physical metal uh, that they've either taken possession of themselves or through a trusted third party. Uh, because, I mean, who knows? I mean, I mean, it, it'll probably, you know, if they can keep control of the market, it'll just kind of float up and down and probably down because of the gold price suppression scheme. But that should be looked upon as 
as an opportunity uh, because, you know, we see, we see OPEC, they own a lot of oil, so they run a cartel to keep the price up. Well, the central banks, they own a lot of gold, but they run a cartel to keep the price down. And why is that? Because they want to uh, keep their uh, fiat paper franchises attractive. And so the strong dollar policy is all about keeping that gold price suppressed. But the Achilles heel is the physical gold uh, demand. And so, I mean, <laughs> anyone who wants to buy something, well, they want it to be at a lower price. And so I just, I look at, I look at gold as a tremendous bargain because the central banks have been keeping its price suppressed for so long. And so I just, you know, I just keep accumulating uh, physical ounces on a monthly basis <laughs> because it's a great deal. <laughs> well, and even people who can't necessarily continue to stockpile, you know, gold, silver is an amazing investment still. I mean, it's up to over 14 an ounce. Um, and doesn't seem to be losing, you know, its ability to climb either. But you know that you talked about the ratio of gold or of silver to gold is starting to to tighten up. I mean, I think that's even got a, a farther way to go than gold in the short term. Oh yeah, silver, silver probably as far as increasing your purchasing power, uh, silver will probably be even a better bet as we see this uh, fiat currency system as the, as the springs keep coming unwound and the duct tape loosens on this claptrap <laughs> contraption. I mean, it's, it, it, there's going to be a lot of upside with silver because uh, silver, like gold, is money. Uh, and, so, and the ratio on silver right now uh, is 66. And, you know, for three years there, uh, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, the ratio was about 55. So there's a lot of upside potential to silver just uh, from closing the ratio to more historic norms. And, you know, just about everybody that we talk to has been saying, you know, for gold and silver both, you know, the looking at, what, $1,200, 1200 to $1,500 gold is not, you know, out of the question, or, you know, 25 to to $30 silver is not out of the question. And And when you look at, what's been happening that looks like it could be a real possibility. Yeah, I mean, it's always difficult trying to predict a price with this illusion because the illusion means absolutely nothing. But So I like to look at it in terms of other key ratios like the Dow to gold ratio, for example, or the Dow to the average American house ratio. And so, I mean, currently the Dow gold ratio is about nine ounces to buy the Dow. And I, I, I think we'll see that... Uh, go even lower this year, perhaps five to six ounces. And so, I mean, we don't necessarily know if that'll be 1250 gold and uh, 6,000 on the Dow or, you know, or, or whether it'll be significantly higher. But the key issue is in uh, that valuation and being able to perform that mental valuation and being able to, to price things effectively. And uh, that, that'll help you retain purchasing power because, even if you hold some of the Dow and the Dow goes up 10%, if gold went up 20%, then you actually lost purchasing power holding the Dow, even though it went up in terms of the illusion. And so that's, that's what I really uh, try to focus on on my website, is being able to perform these mental calculations of value in a reliable currency like gold. Which makes complete sense. I'm glad you brought up your website because as we wrap up today, I want you to um, tell us a little bit about the site and also about your book. 
Oh, yes. I, I just finished uh, my book. It's called The Great Credit Contraction. And I go in the book, I, I march through uh, how we got to this current mess that we're in, the inflationary credit expansion that went on for hundreds of years and how it culminated and, according to basic economic law, has begun to uh, fail. And then I give some suggestions on how to protect and preserve wealth and even generate wealth during this type of an environment. And then on my website, runtogold.com, I uh, take uh, monetary science and apply it to current events. So there will be articles like this one on Brazil, or there will be an article on derivatives or um, any number of topics. I write about all types of things, uh, like the gold and silver ETF. So it's always a good resource. Never quite know exactly what you're going to get, uh, but it, but it's uh, for the most part, I, I try to talk about the monetary role of gold there. So, uh, and it's always an interesting read. <laughs> it, it certainly is. I, I'm, I enjoy your writing very much, and I've learned quite a bit from, from visiting the site, so I encourage our listeners to do that. Trace, I'm really glad that we had an opportunity to talk with you. We missed you while you were in South America, and we will look forward to having you back again next month. Okay, thank you, Michelle. You take care. You too. You've been listening to the RunToGold.com podcast, the premier source for applied monetary science on the web.